0: Revelation 20, we are nearing the end. But before we get there, we got some big stuff. We've already dealt with some. And I know thus far in Revelation, we have already dealt with some big stuff, right? Those letters to the churches. 144,000. 666. The mark of the beast, there's a lot of stuff. Perhaps today is the most discussed of all the thousand year reign, the millennium. There is so much that has been said about this. And I'm a little bit worried that we may not leave here until 1 today because we have so much to cover. But the Word of God is true and living, and the very thing that you and I need to look at today. May God bless it as we commit ourselves to it. Today we're going to look at the first ten verses. This is the passage at the end of the Bible that says, Satan is done. From here, it's all looking up, really. Chapters 21 and 22 at the end now describe what it's like as he sets up heaven and believers are with him. This is kind of the last of all of the bad and, and the evil. This is the defeat of Satan, the end. That's what we're reading about today. But as we've been trying to say now for weeks and months is that Revelation is not so much in chronological order. And so we've been hearing about this in different ways, in different passages throughout the book of Revelation. Today is the end. Making sense of life is often very complicated. I know you will agree with me on that. And therefore, making sense of death is often quite complicated. Making sense of life is often quite complicated, and therefore making sense of death is often quite complicated. And if we would admit it, sometimes there aren't any good answers. Perhaps you know people right now caught up in the hardness of life, and the harshness of life, and dealing with the heaviness of death. And there really isn't much else to say. And the Bible is okay with that. Even as a Christian and a pastor, I'm okay with recognizing that life on this side of heaven is that way. So is the result of sin and the fall and us wanting to do life in our own way. The Bible does tell us that one day soon it will all be finished, and God will reign, and the Lord Jesus Christ will reign, and that will be the beauty and glory and comfort and safety and happiness and joy and thrill and peace for all those that believe. Folks, it may not comfort you completely, fully, right now in your circumstance. And what I mean by that is that you will still feel the pain that this life gives. He doesn't fix all of our problems and struggles. But the promise of God that one day soon it will all be over, we will be with God forever, reigning in heaven for all those who believe, that is to be the ultimate comfort for you today. And our passage from Revelation 20 gets us there. Read with me, if you will, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his, in his hand the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever." These truths are the final answer and comfort to us that we are to look forward to and hope in that God is going to defeat the devil once and for all, and we will never deal, never deal with evil, sin, death, and the devil ever again. That time is coming, and no matter what we suffer through now, that is to be our comfort. May you believe that. May your life and hope and daily confidence be the promises of God that comfort us. Yes, we pray, and yes, we labor and seek the Lord for wisdom that life might get better here. And so often it does. We have better days and better seasons. But when we are most broken, may we know that it is the promises of God for eternal life that is the most comfort. That's why we read Romans 16 earlier in the service, where the book of Romans, that great letter written to the church that is so encouraging to us about how Jesus is a life changer and a savior who justifies the sinful and forgives sins and creates new life in people, that beautiful book of Romans that tells us nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not life nor death. And as heavy and confusing or complicated life or death may be, nothing, Romans 8 says, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. That letter of Romans ends, as Matt read it in Romans 16, with saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Romans 16 says that. He will, and no matter what you're going through today or tomorrow, ought to push you to say just a little bit longer, just a little bit longer, and we'll be there. May you put all of your hope and trust and confidence in the promises of God that Jesus is the answer. To the prom- you surrender everything you got and turn every emotion and struggle to the promises of God that Jesus is the answer. May your life and your heart and your sinfulness and your battle conflicted inside of you surrender and bow down to the promises of God and the work of Jesus Christ to be the comfort. This passage in Revelation twenty gets us to seeing that in the end, when Satan is defeated. Jesus reigns. And not only does Christ reign in the end for all eternity, but he specifically reigns over the very things that are plaguing us. He specifically reigns as victorious over the things that are bothering us and that are getting in the way of that peace that we so long desire, of those joyful moments that we labor for. He reigns over those things. My first point this morning, number one, for the kids listening page and taking notes. Number one, Christ reigns over the devil. I love that the Bible ends this way. Make no mistake about it that Christ reigns over the devil. This is so clear. In verse one, we've got an angel that's holding the key, right? Holding the key to that bottomless pit in a great chain, The devil is not this free-roaming thing that does whatever he wishes. Verse 2 says he seized the dragon. And the dragon, which has been described often throughout Revelation, and we've explained this many times, is that ancient serpent. That takes us all the way back to the very, very first time ever that we hear of the devil in Genesis chapter 3 when the snake comes up, the devil, that ancient serpent, to deceive Adam and Eve. The dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. One is the accuser, the other is the liar. All things crooked, evil, and wicked find their origin and their beginning in this guy. The culture encompasses God and he opposes you. And we live in a world and a culture and quite truthfully a, a Christian denomination that doesn't give much attention to the devil or at least not as much. There are other churches and denominations around that talk about the devil a whole lot more than we do. The Bible here tells us that he is strong and working. Jesus tells us that he comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But Revelation 20, bringing us to the end of all time and the end of God's long book, tells us that Christ reigns over him. He is seized. And in verse 2, the devil is bound. We'll talk a little bit more about a thousand years, but however you look at that, that's a long time. He's not bound for a week, right? He's not put in jail for a little bit. He is bound for a long time. Whether a thousand years is literal or symbolic, doesn't really matter. That's a long time that the devil makes sure, that God makes sure the devil is bound. The Christ reigns over the devil. From here, we go a little bit of a different direction and it starts to talk about these martyrs and those who have lost their lives and, and whoever chose the video, Marshall, I imagine that that was you. The, IM video, the IMB video today was excellent for our passage today the passage goes into all of the people who have died for the cause of Christ they've been beheaded because of their testimony in Jesus and their commitment to the word of God they never sold out and threw in the towel and turned away from God which so many people do in our day many with good excuse many without good excuse but many turn away from Christ there's so many people in our world that used to follow Jesus and the Bible tells us here in the end of a group of people who did it all the way to the end. And that video lets us know just in our little denomination, we are certainly aware that there are many more believers outside of the Southern Baptist denomination, and we praise God for that. We don't think we have it all right. We don't think we're the standard. We don't think we have all the answers. We just think that we're a group of church. believe the Bible and trying hard to keep trusting in Christ. And there are many others outside of this denomination that believe the Bible and hold to Christ and follow him. And there are many throughout the ages, outside of our denomination, that have given their lives for Christ, martyrs for the faith, martyrs in the faith. And that video just told us that there were 300. This passage here tells us about that. Once we get through all of that, which we're going to talk about that later, you get down all the way to, say, verse 10, and it tells us more about this devil, The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The defeat of Satan. God once and for all finally reigning over and above everything. I mentioned several times as we walked through Revelation of this unholy trinity. You remember me mentioning that? the unholy trinity of the dragon, uh, the first beast and the second beast. Here again in verse 10, we have the unholy trinity, a reunion of them. They're all back together in hell, defeated forever. Martin Luther once said that even the devil is God's devil. This passage shows that to us. We preached through the book of Job a couple years ago, and the book of Job made this reality visible to us, did it not? If you're, familiar, if you're familiar with the book of Job, you remember that one day the devil just comes up to God and starts a conversation with him. And God engages the devil in this conversation about what the devil's trying to do on earth, and the devil, in all honesty, says, I'm just looking for somebody to devour, roaming here and there. Other places anything about him. Give us that same picture, that same description. He's a lion. Job doesn't mention anything about him being a lion. But the Bible says he's like a lion, roaming and prowling, looking to devour somebody. And Job makes that so visible to us. We, we can picture that. And it is God, not the devil, that says, well, what about this guy? Why don't you go after him? It's a wild scene for us to consider, but it helps us so much to understand what God is doing in allowing the devil to do what the devil does. Listen to this commentator who's going to help us a lot over this sermon speak about Christ reigning over the devil. Notice here, okay, in our passage in Revelation 20, we have him seized and bound. The devil bound. Wilcox says, Satan is seized and bound. Whatever interpretation may seem to be placed on this by the writings of commentators or by the state of the world around us, Christ's own words must carry the greatest weight. And it is there, in the teaching of Christ, that we find the only other biblical reference to the binding of Satan. All three synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, relate the parable of the strong man fully armed who guards his own palace so that his goods are in peace. The story goes on to describe the coming of one stronger than he, whose object is to plunder the strong man's property. The newcomer assails him and overcomes him, says Luke, and binds him, says Matthew and Mark. Now, we know from the context that this story was told expressly to illustrate something which happened to Satan and which happened to him at the time of the incarnation, the coming of Christ on earth as a baby. With Christ's first coming, the kingdom of God had come, and he went about casting out evil spirits to demonstrate precisely that Satan, for all of his strength, had been seized and bound. Christ reigns over the devil. In our day, we feel the work of the devil. We may not ascribe it to him often, but we feel the work of evil. We limp through life. We hurt. We notice people that hurt. We see tragedy and we wonder why. And We recognize that the devil is working. This is why we are to put on the whole armor of God, as we've learned in Ephesians 6, as that passage tells us that we may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil, knowing and believing and trusting that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Christ reigns over the devil when you and I feel the heaviness of sin and the brokenness and the struggle of this life, so often we cry out for things to get better. And through good decision-making and support of friends and loved ones and a good church family, may things get better. May there be better days ahead. But for all the times that there aren't, may your soul and your feet May your head and your heart stand firmly on this truth, that Jesus Christ reigns over the devil. He is bound, and one day he will be thrown into hell forever. May you believe it. But not only does Christ reign over the devil, as we see in this passage, but secondly, and I love this truth, Christ reigns over deception. Number two, Christ reigns over deception. Because of our passage last week and the mention of deception in chapter 19, I've been thinking about that and had an opportunity this week to preach chapel at one of our local schools. Preached on deception there. And we have the word brought up again here in verse twenty. In chapter 20, verse 3. In chapter 20, verse 3, you see, he threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. For as much as the devil is trying to deceive, and for as much deception as there is in the world, and for as much as we do hear the Bible tell us, do not be deceived. It says it all the time. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. Do not be deceived. We must be awake and alert to not be deceived by all sorts of things. We talked about it Wednesday night here. I preached on it Friday morning at that school. We're deceived by ourselves. We're deceived by messages. We're deceived by people. We're deceived by the devil. There is so much deception in our world. But there is also another truth, that for as much deception as there is in the world, there is a greater truth that Christ reigns over that deception. By you looking to Christ, trusting in him, believing him, and being led by his truth, God's way being the best way, you can avoid deception. And this passage is showing us this. Christ reigns over deception. Let me read this to you. Read this from Wilcock again about this. Consider what is said about the nations in the rest of Scripture. Notice here that the deception is that we see the devil trying to do is over the nations. The whole world. People in every part of the earth. People from every walk of life. People that grow up with a Bible in their living room and people that have never heard of a Bible. People that claim Christ simply because they live here. And people who've never even heard the name of Jesus. This passage says that the devil is bound and not able to deceive the nations any longer. Now listen to this commentator. Consider what is said about the nations in the rest of Scripture. Their blessing will come through the seed of Abraham. Their light through the recognized servant of the Lord. And when Christ is born, the aged Simeon recognizes that the baby in his arms is himself the seed and the servant. A light for revelation to the nations as well as glory for Israel. During the earthly life of Jesus, the undeceiving of the nations is foreshadowed by the visit of the wise men and exemplified by his contacts with a Roman centurion, a Canaanite woman, and a company of Greeks. The same pattern is repeated in the life of the church. Men from every nation under heaven come to its cradle on the day of Pentecost, and its career is marked by the conversion of Samaritans, Romans, and Greeks. And when the New Testament was written in the book of Acts and the book that we're reading right now, Revelation, the United States of America had not even been dreamed of. It was thousands of years later. Well, it was hundreds of years later, over a thousand years later, before any mention of God and truth and salvation in Christ landed in Fairdale, Kentucky. And by the mercy of God, it got here because the nations are not able to be deceived when the message of pre- is preached that Jesus Christ gave his life on the cross for whosoever will. The nations are not able to be deceived when the name of Jesus is proclaimed. Satan is bound over that proclamation. Christ reigns over deception. There are a lot of people being deceived, but they don't have to be if they will turn to Christ and we will tell them and love them toward believing that Jesus changes hearts, minds, souls, eternities. He changes generations, He changes homes, He changes families, He changes attitudes, He changes grumpiness, He changes lostness and blindness. He changes people and we can tell them that. That's our testimony, isn't it? Our testimony is I was deceived, but now I'm not. I used to live for this but now I don't. That's our testimony. All of us can feel and relate to one else. Yes. Man, I should be someone else. I should be somewhere else. I should be doing something else. I should be living for something else or for someone else. I should be some other type of way. But God got a hold of my life, and he saved me, and he changed me. He changed my heart on the inside. God did that. God changed what I love. He changed what I follow. He changed what I value. He changed what I live for. He changed the very thing that drives me and directs our lives. That's our testimony, isn't it? That we used to be deceived, but now clarity has come that life is about God. And even through the struggle of life, we hope in him. He's our foundation. And even through the struggling, that doesn't get better. So the suffering of this life, we have the promise that says just a little bit longer. We have the hope that heaven's a real place. There are people already there with him. And by the salvation that Jesus offers alone, we too will get there soon. We are not deceived. We are not deceived in thinking that if we're good, we'll get there. We're not deceived by that. We know better than that. We are not deceived into thinking that we can beat our chest and pull up our boots and just keep working hard and that everything will work out and be okay in the end, that everybody makes it there. We don't believe that baloney. We believe that there's a loving God who's a father in heaven that knew we could never get there on our own. So he gave his son for us, who died in our place, took our sins. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should die for me. What a great song that we just sang. God opened my eyes so that I would not be deceived. That's your story, isn't it? Certainly there's people in here that don't trust in Christ, but for the the majority of people who are following Jesus, that's it, that we're not deceived any longer. Our shackles are off, our sin has been dealt with. We don't think we're good, but we think he is. We don't think that we've earned it, but we think he gives it. Not added to the, Wilcock writes. Listen to this: Every time we see a new convert added to the church, Satan's inability to deceive the nations is proclaimed afresh. What a quote! Hallelujah! Praise God! People are always wondering what causes people to get into the ministry. Us guys that are in the ministry get asked that all the time. What in the world led to that? Didn't you grow up dreaming to be a doctor or a coach or a pro athlete or something like that? How'd you end up doing this job? And I would say that at least half the time, they think that it's because of our dads. I bet your dad's in the ministry too, isn't he? I've had that so many times. You know what? My dad's not. He never dreamed of the ministry, and he never once dreamed of the ministry for me. I got a great dad. I love him you will probably listen to this later on. He's had a great influence in my life. But it was none of his influence that led me to this point. A lot of his influence that makes me who I am, but none of his influence that led me to this point. You know what we believe, and you believe too? You're not a pastor necessarily, but you know what we believe? We believe that God leads us and opens our eyes to understand a purpose in our lives. This is what God wants me to be doing This is who God has made me to be. This is what God is doing in my life. I'm not deceived into thinking that I'm lost and have no purpose. We have clarity to understand that God made us for the glory of God. And whether we're runners or teachers or doctors or neighbors or helpers or construction workers, whatever we are, we have purpose in our lives that is for the glory of God. We're not deceived into that. For as complicated as life is and as hard as it is to sort out life and death, we know one thing, it is for the glory of God, and he is working in us. We understand our lives because of the work he's done in us. Wilcott goes on and says this. I'll hold off. The deception. I'll hold off on that. So Christ reigns over deception, meaning if you look back here at Revelation 20, okay, verse 3, threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that, that's what I want y'all to see here in Revelation, he might not deceive the nations any longer, okay? Well, then you have this mention, let's stay here at verse 3, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. So this thousand years, okay, whatever it is, will at some point come to an end where Satan is let out and he tries to go crazy and he tries to ruin everything that he can. But that's a short little while, it says. And in that short little while, he tries to do what he can in ruining the world, but then it is not long at all before it's over. This is very consistent with the way you have thought about everything else that the Bible has taught you. That a tribulation is coming. That things are going to get worse. That devil is going to try and try and try. That's consistent with what we're seeing right here. Now, let me read to you what Wilcox says about that. There are other passages in the Bible that teach us about the return of Christ. And we have said often that Christ will return, he will judge the world, He will save those that are trusting in Christ, and he will judge those who are not. You've got passages in Matthew that teach us this. You've got passages in Thessalonians that teach us this. And he speaks about the one from 2 Thessalonians 2. He says, Paul describes in 2 Thessalonians 2 what will immediately precede the return of Christ. The rebellion comes first, and the man of lawlessness is revealed. For the present, a divine power is restraining him. These quotes are coming from 2 Thessalonians 2, not Revelation 20. The, a divine power is restraining him. In some respects, of course, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. But when the restraints are off, the world will see again the activity of Satan with all wicked deception. Listen to the sentence. Paul's non-symbolic predictions tally so remarkably with the symbolic prophecies of Revelation 20, in other words, 2 Thessalonians 2 and Revelation 20 sound so much alike, is what he's saying, that it is hard to see how the two passages could refer to two different circumstances. The binding of Satan, and then the letting him go, pointing us toward what we are experiencing now, pointing us up to the return of Christ, When God will save the world, judge the lost, and forever defeat Satan. Christ reigns over the devil. Christ reigns over deception. And finally, number three, Christ reigns over death. Hallelujah. If you look at verse four, it's a heavy section, but it is comforting. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. Look at this. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Y'all, this passage puts into a fantastic light those who have been martyred. They are heroes. They're good. They're reigning. They're with God. They're not worse off. It was a horrible way how they left earth, but it only put them into the best position one could ever have been. put them into the position that we long for. Look at those here that have been killed. It's so good. Death isn't bad in this passage. They are past it. Commentator Hamster writes, John, in an effort to encourage the faithful, takes the believer behind the scenes of earthly persecution. Let me read that again. Takes the believer behind the scenes of earthly persecution to witness a sovereign Christ and a bound Satan. The vision affirms that Christ is victor, And that the martyrs are alive. What a quote. The end of the Bible is showing us that God is reigning and Satan is defeated and the martyrs are there on thrones reigning with Christ because this life is not all that life is meant to be. Eternity is. And he reigns over the devil and deception and even death. If you die for him, you live forever. To live is Christ and to die is gain. And Revelation 20 doesn't just say, oh, they're good. Revelation 20 says they're on thrones with their king who they gave their lives for because he's worthy. And it is crystal clear here that they are fine. It's an amazing thing. Christ reigns over death. I already mentioned it, but the video showed us that there have been 300 international mission board missionaries that have given their lives on the field. 300. Our Lottie Moon Christmas offering, you all haven't put those two things together. The reason why we're showing those videos is because right now we're taking up that offering because 100% of that money goes to support those missionaries. It's one of the only mission agencies in the world, in the history of the world, where they're fully funded. Right now, you know people that are trying to raise money so they can get to the mission field. And right now, you know people who are still trying to raise money because it's so hard to raise money to get to fully funded, But the IMB will pay 100% to get those missionaries there. We have thousands of missionaries on the field now in all places in the world sharing the gospel. But that video reminded us that there have been 300 who have died for the waste. We support them. We hate the tragedy. But we do not think that it was a waste. We think that it was worth it. And we know that God was working through it. And this passage tells us where they are and where they will be and that they are okay. Christ reigns over death. It tells us that here. Not only does Christ reign over death with this passage and that the martyrs are okay and that people are alive after they've died. But Christ reigns over death in the sense that he too died. May we never think about death without realizing Jesus died. May every death we see, witness, and experience cause our minds to go to, he died too. Jesus can sympathize with you around every death you deal with. He's been there. He knows what the last breaths are like. He knows what the fear of death is like. He knows what it is to lose your life. He's done that. Christ died, and yet he lives. May you and I look for all comfort in life and death through Christ who died and lives. Lately, we have seen a lot of tears. Lately, I've seen a lot of tears. In recent days and weeks, I've been in a lot of deathbeds. I've been with a lot of people recently where they've died days after I was with them. This week, I sat beside Anna Harris and talked to her close to 30 hours before she died. I actually went with a message from one of our church members and said, Hey, hey, make sure you tell her this. It was nice. You've been there too with your loved ones. And there's nothing like it. There's so many thoughts and feelings that go through your heart and mind. There's so much reflection that goes back to all the goodness that y'all have experienced. There's countless memories that stir your heart and mind about life and its impact and influence. And I think if we're being honest, there are a lot of comforts. Treasuring memories is one thing, it's not everything. Christ reigning over death is a comfort. Christ being the answer to death. Is a huge comfort. May you not look for comfort outside of that. May you believe he died and he lives. And whoever believes him will too. So the big question that comes out of this passage is, when was this thousand years? This is where all the controversy is. This is where all the discussion is. And it's noon, so. When was this thousand year reign? When will this be? The question becomes okay, is Christ gonna return and then you have the thousand years? Or is the thousand years leading up to it and Christ returns? Or, is Christ going to kind of return, then you have the thousand years, and then he kind of returns again? There's a lot of people here that believe that. But that's the question. When is it? If you take Revelation as being chronological, which I have tried for months to say we don't need to take it chronological, if you take it as chronological, then one might really, 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 really think and be convinced that Christ turns because we've been reading many times about Christ's return. Chapter 19 was Christ's return, and then you have the 1,000 years. He returns in chapter 19, and chapter 20 is the 1,000 years. If you think about it like that, it could be he returns, and then you have the 1,000 years. But just one argument against that. In chapter 19, he dealt with everything. He judged everything. So much so that it even says, Lord, I pray symbolically, that he called for the birds to come and eat all the flesh of earth. So much so that they gorged themselves because it was it. It was over. That was the judgment. And I think last week we were all about that was the end. No question about it. And then you get to this week, and it's like, oh, well, there's the 1,000 years. And so what is the 1,000-year reign? What's he reigning over? What's Satan bound over? What's Satan wishing that he could be deceiving? Then he's let go, and he comes back out, and then then he is deceiving. If it all ended in chapter 19 at the return of Christ, and then you have the 1,000 years, then what's Satan doing and deceiving, and who are the lost people in the 1,000 years? That's just one argument against it. What I want to submit today is that the thousand years represents Christ's first coming to his second coming. In other words, this passage today is just symbolic from the first coming to the second coming. And Satan being bound means that he's not able to stop what God's doing in the world. He's working, he's deceiving, he's shooting out darts, trying to ruin lives. It's not greater than what God's doing. And greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Listen to this quote from Hamstra. He says, The vision begins with a heavenly angel capturing and binding. This scene to a thousand years. Allowing scripture to interpret scripture, we may conclude that this scene describes the effect of Christ's earthly ministry on Satan this is consistent with several visions in the apocalypse that return the reader to the beginning of our current dispensation. This vision highlights Jesus' dominion over the serpent through the crucifixion and resurrection. Through his redemptive work, Christ curtailed the forces of Satan and paved the way for the successful proclamation of the gospel throughout the world. Of course, this does not mean that Satan is neutralized, but on the contrary, God permits Satan to influence and impact society within the circle of his imprisonment. In other words, Satan is bound. He's still working, but he's only working in ways that God permits him. And God is working outside, bigger and above, what Satan is able to do. God is bringing about the ransom of his children. And as we share the gospel, people are being saved. Schreiner writes, The insanity of evil stands out here. It cannot truly triumph over good. And this, Satan's attempts to persuade humans to rebel against God are an exercise in futility. Yes, he brings many down with him. But at the end of the day, Satan will be routed. We are reminded that all sin is ultimately a kind of insanity. Sin never makes sense. It brings no satisfaction or joy, and it never succeeds ultimately. Those who trust in the Lord and persevere in faith will have the greatest joys. The Bible brings us to an end with several chapters about heaven, forgiveness, The people are there, the peace of it, the joys of it, details of it, and it's good. We're getting there. There's a judgment that we will address next week. But in our passage this morning, we are to see Christ reigning over all that troubles us. Satan is defeated. When it comes time for you to think long and hard, to think deeply about life, and death, may you trust in Christ who reigns forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that guides us, and we thank you, God, that Satan is not greater than you, and that our salvation is sure in Christ. Father, we pray today that we would be strengthened and grounded in our faith. God, we pray that you would help us to think through the bigger things in life and the truth that Jesus Christ reigns. God, help us now to have our lives shaped by your truth. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.